0: Hi friends, Josh from the Narrate team here. This weekend is the second and final part of the series, God the Parent, that covered Mother's Day and Father's Day. For Father's Day, Adam asked the question, how do we navigate the tension between freedom and constraint? It's a real honor to get to celebrate with you, and uh, I really want to jump right in because I want us to get to communion, which I think is the important part of this morning, but as we think about Father's Day and challenging ourselves and at the same time encouraging ourselves as, as parents, and if you're not a father or a parent at all, or uh, certainly there's some area where you have responsibility, where, where you have authority in life. And I guess the question that I want to start with is do you ever find yourself getting to the place where you're laying in bed awake at night, wondering and even doubting whether or not you exercised your authority correctly? Uh, do you ever find yourself losing sleep over the fact that you made a decision and you're not even sure if it was the right decision? Or do you just? We I think talked about this a couple months ago. Like, do you ever find yourself uh, wishing that you could get the job with the rubber stamp, where you don't have to make decisions and you don't have to decide things? I worked for somebody who, at the time, I didn't understand it, but he used to say it, and now I think it was genius. He used to say, "I'm understanding that my my lot in life is to disappoint people." And I think if you have any sense of responsibility, you can begin to relate to just the exhaustion of all of that. And so this morning, I want to get into that whole decision-making piece. And obviously, as the video says, try to strike up a conversation again. And this isn't a new conversation for us. It's one that we return to often because to me, it's such a vital part of what it means to be human and what it means to follow the God in the text. And that is this conversation of striking some kind of intelligent balance between uh, boundaries uh, and and freedom, some kind of intelligent boundaries between when is it my job to decide and is it my job to let someone else Decide, And to that end, I think that there's all kinds of directions the application can go as we think about uh, decisions. A week ago, speaking of decisions, last Sunday, uh, my Sundays are are unique uh, because they start at 4.30 and then my wife worked last Sunday. And so we had this great day of a great morning, lots of energy around the help. My name is Anxiety or hello, my name is Anxiety, uh, though we messed up the book thing. I'm sorry about that, but we're making that right. Uh, And then at 2 o'clock, I met some friends and my boys at a Legion baseball game, and that was fun. We sat in the sun because, remember, it was kind of cold on Saturday, so the sun felt good. And then my manipulation tactics worked because after the Legion game, the boys wanted to go play baseball, so we went to the baseball fields. And so finally, at about 7 o'clock, we were coming home, and I said to my boys something that I don't suggest very often. I was like, "'Hey, guys, what what, what if we go rent a movie?' And that, that's somewhat rare because I, I just don't like watching movies. I find them terrifyingly boring, and I would much rather watch the Cardinals or football or something of that extent. So so they were like, yes, let's go get a movie. And so me wanting to kind of do things well, we, we even went like not fast food drive-in style like Redbox, though there's a very important place for that. We went to Hastings, and we were like going to walk the aisles and everything. And so as we drove toward Hastings, uh, one of the other contextual dynamics I suppose that could be helpful is Several months ago, I got sick of uh, the the game of, you know, walking into Hastings, you and your three boys, or you and your kids, whatever, and and you're walking in there with three, four wills, and walking out with one movie. You know that dynamic? And so I just got sick of that. Like, someone's always crying, and it was embarrassing when it was me. And so we just decided... (laughs) Um, here's the deal. From now on, it's on a rotation. Every fifth time, you get to pick out the movie. But other than that, there's no crying over the movie. Like, Tom Hanks is my inspiration, right? A League of Their Own. There's no crying in baseball. Like, there's no, there's no crying when we pick out the movie. So as we're driving there, uh, the boys had already kind of figured out, like, okay, so it's Lincoln's turn. And I asked them their permission to share this story. It's Lincoln's turn to pick out the movie. So, of course, some are more engaged than others. And we pull into the parking lot. And as we go to get out of the car, and you know, some are therefore more excited to get out of the car than others, uh, Chase, my middle, uh, he was sitting in the front seat with me, and he's like, hey, do I have to go in? And the first thought that I had, because I never make fear-based decisions, is, well, people go to jail for leaving their dogs in the car during this kind of weather, and so yes, you have to go in. I'm sure some of you face the same decision, like, I, it doesn't bother me, but maybe it's not smart. So yeah, you got to go in. He's like, but then i got to put my sho- socks and shoes on, which parenthetically, right? Like if you're a parent, here's the degree to which I have any years ahead of you. Cause I remember when my kids were three and four and I couldn't wait for the day when you would get to the store or wherever it is where you're going and they hadn't taken their shoes and socks off. I've still not discovered that day. And my oldest is 12. So I'm like, okay, well, put them on and, and meet us inside of there. And so, okay, he's, you know, whatever. And so we go in and to Lincoln's credit, Like there's the you you could gauge your trip to Hastings by the number of passes you make down the aisle, right? And the number of times you open open Google and start searching for childhood favorites because you can't see anything inspirational. First pass, Lincoln grabbed. I think is it called Creed? Right off the shelf, it's Rocky seventy seven or whatever number it is. It was actually a pretty good movie. So, we weren't in there very long, we're checking out. I was thinking to myself, wow, we haven't even seen Chase yet. And so, sure enough, we get out of the parking lot, and I could see him in the front seat, get in the car, and I'm like, dude, what happened? And I think he was being a little afraid that I was going to be upset. He's like, hey, hey, I, I, I couldn't make it in time. I was like, well, what happened? He said, well, I was getting my socks on, and then this car parked across from us, and he said, this man and this woman, they got out of the car, and then they just started kissing. And I was like, well, what does that have to do with your inability to get in the store? And he said, well, I had to hide. <laughs> What do you mean you had to hide? He said, "Well, I had to sneak into the back seat and hide behind the back seat because I knew that they couldn't, like, they they wouldn't want me to see them kissing." And then he's like, "And Dad, they kissed for like two minutes." And then then he said, "And Dad, he's like, Dad, like, he he was like pushing her up against the car and stuff." Great. No wonder Hastings is going out of business because there's dry humping in the parking lot happening. So. So apparently he was, he was huddled down in the backseat, kind of trying to not to get caught watching them. And so I had to explain to him, like, you know, it's not against the law to watch people uh, kiss. Like, not a bad move. But, and then I thought it was all over because I, I was just howling at this point um, as I was getting ready to take the left where you're not supposed to take a left, right? Like, everybody does that on the Montana as you come out of that parking lot. And, and Lincoln goes, Dad, I think I know who she was. How do you know who she was? He said, I saw this woman in Hastings, like, looking at movies, and her lipstick was all, like, messed up, and her face was all bright red. And then he said, because that's how the girls come in from the lunch break in middle school when they've been doing that at recess. So there you go. So I'm guessing the decisions that you've been sorting out don't have anything to do with the legality of watching Two Twitter-pated adults. We also had a great conversation about infatuation. That was fun. Um, nonetheless, I'm guessing those aren't the decisions you're making, but here's, here's what I know, and I, I know that can be patronizing and maybe the wrong way to start this, but if you're a parent, and if you're not a parent, if you have any sense of responsibility, here, here's what we know, and that is that there is this, this dilemma... This paradox, this exhausting dynamic that comes with the territory, which is the whole conflict between freedom and constraint, between you choose and I choose, and, and, and I don't know, like, are you supposed to be able to take your iPhone with you when you go to bed at night? Or, like, at what age do you get an iPhone, and what grades do you have to get in school before you're not grounded anymore, and like, what sports do you have to play, and which ones don't have to play, and I know I'm paying for school, so how, like, how much choice do I have, or what college do you go to? There's all these decisions, and this morning, where I'm, the reason I'm excited to jump in is because I, I think for so many of us, this is personal. And not only is it personal, it's right at the center of the way God reveals himself in the text. Now, I don't know what you believe about the Bible. I know that some believe it's a crusty book, and you learn that in college, that it's not unique to any other old sacred book. Others of you probably value it, but maybe don't take it off the shelf. Here, here for me is why I think the text is so irreplaceable in a person's daily life, should they engage it. And that is that time after time after time, the intersections that we have to deal with the conflicts that we have to navigate, the questions we find ourselves. This God, and the technical word is incarnating God, this God is so personal to us that he doesn't just give us this wooden religion that we then have to translate to our everyday life. He frequently and often throughout the text puts himself in those same circumstances, which is what allows us to then go, okay, so how, how do we navigate this situation in a healthy fashion? And I don't know that I'll ever get to do PhD work, but if I do, it'll be on this issue. And I think this is so central to the whole parenting issue. See, this God in this text reveals himself as superior in every way. The claim of the text is that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, morally superior, relationally perfect, that that he he is the best in the fullest sense of the word. Some would even say we shouldn't even use the word awesome outside of our reference to God. And yet, he creates people who are all things the opposite... And then he gives them the keys. Like he spends his whole life building a brand and then he hires people fresh out of college and he allows them to make decisions about the direction of that brand. Like he raises a daughter to 16 and then she trusts her to make some choices about what she's going to do with her life. And it is such a confounding, frustrating thing. And what I love about this God in this text, especially as it relates to parenting, and the reason we're getting to do this god the parent conversation is because throughout the text, this God doesn't just put himself in our problems. This God reveals himself to us over and over and over again as a parent. Which means for those of you who find yourselves as exhausted, kind of zero-sum game, nobody wins at this kind of parents, which are all very honest sentiments, something we talked about on Mother's Day, what the text invites us to do is step into the story and go, okay, God, well, you parent, and you know this experience. So how did you navigate the iPhone? And how did you navigate grades? And how did you navigate allowance? And how, how did you deal with how far do you get to decide even though I disagree with it and when do I have to put my foot down? And that's what we're going to ask because, see, what we see is is this guy, let's just pick up. First of all, he he has this predisposition for people's freedom, something that Bob a.k.a. the bearded one, refers to in in that whole video. Listen to verse 126 in Genesis. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule. This God, though he was perfect and we were imperfect, though he had all the knowledge and we had none of the knowledge, this God starts a store, builds a brand, builds a house, buys a car, and then he goes, Here. Here. You make some choices. And this thread, you just can't avoid it. And You can't understand the God of this text without appreciating how much permission God gives people to chart their own course backwards, though it may be, despite his best intentions. And in fact, his sincerity is put to the test in Genesis 2. Listen to Genesis 2, and it's easy to skip over this. And listen, my, my two cents on Genesis, whether it's parable or literal, doesn't matter. We can access its wisdom and truth. Listen to Genesis 2. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He made the thing. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Notice that the text here doesn't just say that God gave the kids permission to name the animals. But he actually is waiting in wonder to see what they would name them. Now, it's easy to pass this over and go like, well, that's not literally what he meant. But over and over again, what we see is this God who is some sense outside of time, in the story, is inside of time, and is waiting in suspense to go like, well, I don't know, who's she going to marry? I can't control that. They get to decide. In fact, one theologian, becoming one of my favorites, he he says this, uh, God can, of course, look into a person's mind to discover what he is thinking, or look into the future to discover what she will do, but here and elsewhere, the Old Testament implies that God does not always do that. Now, he goes on to use the metaphor of, of a 16-year-old girl with a journal. And he says, of course, a mother with a 16-year-old who knows that her daughter has a journal could access the journal and learn all kinds of things about her daughter. But this guy doesn't like that. He chooses instead to allow the daughter to reveal herself to him as she so chooses. This God is predisposed towards a system that allows people to make decisions and not control them. I was having lunch with someone a couple of weeks ago and in her 20 something Jesus following sincerity, she was kind of just wrecked by one of two decisions. And, you know, everybody who's ever been 25, it's, 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 it's those very important and yet very troubling, you know, where am I going to live and what am I going to do and those types of decisions. And after listening to the sincerity of her wrestling for, for several minutes, I just looked at her and I, I was thinking of Augustine, this old theologian. And I said, hey, well, what if God doesn't care? Like, not in the sense that he's insincere or removed or detached or indifferent, but in the sense that there's not one little path to follow and your goal in life is to not screw that up. Like what if there's lots of decisions you can make here that in fact honor God? What if this thinking that we have and I don't I don't know whether it's Greek or where it comes from, but this idea that we're born with some kind of destiny and our lot in life is to make sure we don't screw up that destiny, what if that's not at all the way God describes the story? This God is predisposed to freedom and as a parent that's confusing. But you know what makes it even more confusing? For me, anyway, he's predisposed to freedom, but he also gives boundaries. It's this both and. It's not a formula. It's not an algorithm. It's this like, because he also, let's go back a couple verses in chapter 2. See, I don't have the answers this morning, but there's a conversation that I think we have to keep building on if we're going to think about these things in ways that honor him. Listen to verse 16 in chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man... You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now just track with me through this logic for a second, will you, with all due respect to God. God creates people with the capacity to make choices. He gives them power. He gives them authority. He says their desire is to follow—that the goal is that they would follow him and exercise their authority the way he would. Then he puts them in a garden where if they just ate the fruit, they would have the ability to know what was the right thing to do. And then he says, don't eat that fruit. It kind of doesn't make any sense. It's a pretty strange prohibition, isn't it? Well, One theologian suggests that part of the way perhaps we understand that is we access the story of Solomon. Solomon, of course, the third king of Israel, famous for his concubines, which we know were used for making ethanol. Solomon's story ended poorly, uh, but it started really, really well. And in fact, Solomon finds himself king, and he finds himself broken by the responsibility of that, and it leads to this kind of genie in a bottle moment where God goes like, "Hey, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give it to you." And, and listen to what happens in, in 1 Kings chapter three. Here, here's this interaction that I, I think, and I know it's a bit sounds like a tangent, but stick with me. Now, the Lord God. Uh, now, this is Solomon speaking, by the way. Now, Lord, my God. You have made me your servant king in place of my father, David, but I'm only a little child and did not know how to carry out my duties. Notice the humility. Notice Solomon going like, I mean, it's Solomon holding the baby in the hospital going like, what? I'm supposed to do what? I can't do this. Verse 8, he continues, Your servant, even look at that phrase, your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. This reminds me of one of Andy Stanley's most famous statements leadership is a stewardship, it's temporary and you're accountable. See, Solomon has this sense of like, listen, I don't have this company, this organization, this child because of who I am, but because you've given them it to me and it will be temporary and I'm not sure I'm fit for the task. And so look what he looks, what he asked for verse nine. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. Solomon asks for wisdom. Back to Genesis 2. Why would God put people in the garden, give them freedom, offer them constraint, and then say, don't eat from the tree that would give you the very thing that you're going to need? Some would suggest, and it sure makes sense to me, that first and foremost, what God wants to establish is that he and nothing else is the source of wisdom. That he wants to create the kind of fidelity in the relationship where people, Adam and Eve in this case, go, wait, wait, wait a minute. If I want wisdom, you're the guy, not some artificial or some organic tree. And you can also see that there's an observation here about the first step of wisdom is is discretion and restraint and self control. Now, that's just an option, but nonetheless, what we see here, and this is what I'm getting at with parenting. And again, it's, it's a pretty poor solution, is a God who, who does not compel people to obey him, but does offer boundaries, constraint, direction on the way to go. There is, there is constraint. There are boundaries. He says to Adam and Eve, you've got to rule over creation. He says to Adam, you've got to make this garden thing happen. He says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, which is a great constraint, but nonetheless, it's a constraint. It's a boundary. He even says to Adam, hey, there are certain boundaries that you will have to follow if you're going to live in my garden. Namely, that you look to me as the primary source of wisdom, which means that this dilemma as a dad, as a parent, as a leader, as a manager, as an owner, as a person with some sense of responsibility— it's central to the way God has always talked about humanity. That really what we're talking about as parents is, go ahead to that next slide, is like like how do we manage this, this conflict between freedom and constraint? And I just wonder if the point at which we're aware of that conflict doesn't guarantee that we're always going to solve the riddle perfectly, but at least we're headed in the right direction where we understand this is really the conversation that we're having. Now, to whatever degree it's helpful, because like I said, this is a pretty sincere one for me, And it seems to me that all of us come at this from one extreme or the other. And the story tends to go, either you were raised by people who were too controlling, and so you are less controlling, or you're raised by people who weren't controlling enough, and you become more controlling. And then you marry somebody who had the opposite experience, and then you go to therapy. (laughs) Here's here's just a few handles to the degree that it's helpful. First of all, I wonder if we were just to take the wisdom thing more literally. Like to look to God. Like what, what if one of the best models we can give our kids as dads is to go, you know what? I can't answer that question right now. It's too fast. It's too emotional. You're gonna have, let, let's come back at this in 48 hours. You got my word. I'll bring it up. I got to pray. I got to think. I got to step away from it. I need a couple nights sleep. I know I make my decisions better when I'm thinking about things indirectly. There's this person who has a life that, that I would love to have in 10 years, and I need to consult with them. Whatever that looks like, what if we need to create space to do the very thing James says in, in chapter 1 where he says, hey, if, if any of you, go ahead, next slide. If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives freely, generously to all without finding fault and it'll be given to you. What if the dynamic of the garden hasn't changed? Where a God stands by eager for relationship, insists that he won't intrude upon your journal and says, but hey, listen, if you want to talk, let's let's talk. And listen, we already had this conversation between the first and second gathering where someone's like, yeah, but, I mean, people have People strap bombs to themselves on this very same guise. I sought wisdom, and this is what I'm supposed to do. You know something? For me, that, that's, that's why I'm all about Jesus and not the system. Because I get you could read the Bible and probably strap a bomb to yourself if that's the case you wanted to make. I'm not convinced you can read from the four Gospels of Jesus and come to that conclusion. That doesn't mean you can't be aware of Jesus, but I mean you can't really be a student of his life and his decision-making and conclude that God would have you do that. That's why so much of what we're about here is going like, no, no, it's not about the system. It's about Jesus, the man, and really the goal of Narrate, the challenge of Narrate, for those of us who already follow him, is to keep the man from becoming a wooden system. The other thing that's been helpful to me, and I had my friend Fred say this to me years ago, and I think it can help us as we just process the way our parents navigated this tension. Fred said to me, Adam, there's three things that if you can reconcile towards your parents, you can really move forward. First of all, uh, recognize your parents taught you some really good stuff. Be aware of that. Be grateful for that. That's what it means to honor your parents. Then he said, secondly, recognize they also taught you some, some bad things. I was just saying to a friend at the baseball field a couple weeks ago, I have no doubt in my mind my kids are going to need therapy for some of the stuff I'm doing to them. I, and listen, I'm not trying to—is there abuse? Of course there's abuse. Is that not funny? Yeah, it's not. I'm not saying that. But the third thing, and this is the thing that I think can unlock the whole deal, is if you could just recognize your parents loved you as much as they were able. Now, are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. But the idea here is it would be a rare parent who was laying awake at night contemplating ways in which to withhold love from their kid, wouldn't it? That really what's in play here, and, and maybe the reason why we celebrate our mothers and fathers more and more as we get older and older, is we have a greater appreciation for how impossible of a job it is to win at. But that really what's in play here is a person can only love in ways consistent with what they've experienced. And therefore, are you right to fault your parents? Or are you accurate in your fault of your parents that they didn't love you perfectly? Of course you are. Listen, I, I think where this can be helpful is as you process your own baggage about where your parents too controlling or not controlling enough. If you're not a parent, here, here's the one thing that I was hoping you would take from this morning was, and that is simply that you would be compassionate and empathetic towards the fact that you may disagree with the way they navigated this tension, but I guarantee they lost sleep over how they did. I guarantee there were sleepless nights where they were sincerely wondering which one's the right one. Did they do it perfectly? Certainly not. My hope for you would be that you go find yourself a job and a responsibility where you have kids of your own and you begin to feel that weight of uh, where's the job with the stamps? Because I think as that happens, you can appreciate the only way you win at this is by consulting a God who offers to walk with you through it. And even then, no one, no one bats a 1,000. That's why we have the cross. And the third thing, and this, this for me, I heard a guy named Walt Brueggemann, who's one of the most respected Old Testament scholars uh, alive today. I heard him say this this week, and I thought, man, what a respectful way to describe God. He said, this God is agile and present to circumstances. We like to think of a God who had it all laid out from creation to the cross to consummation. And and our goal was just to be actors in the show and not screw it up. Not the God of this text. This God made animals and then went like, I don't know what they're going to call this goofy thing with a long neck and spots all over it. This will be interesting. This God is agile. Disappointment. Sin, it doesn't destroy the story. He just adjusts. He stays present. We like to talk about the fall as though at the point of sin, God kicked people out of the garden and then never communicated with them again. That's not what the text describes. Jesus, there, There's this conversation between God and people in the next chapter. Are there consequences? Of course there are. And he's just going like, okay, here we go. We're going to figure this thing out. It's the process of redemption, which means his parents... What if we just understood, like, oh, man, I'm going to have my desires for my kids. And if there's a secret to parenting, it's agility and presence to circumstance. Holding fast to wisdom and begging that God would give us enough self-awareness to adjust and rethink and stay present to our kids. Listen, I'm not sure, of course, what you showed up here thinking about Jesus and what it means to follow him. But what stands out to me is that this Jesus doesn't invite us into an algorithm or a formula. He invites us into a relationship. And there's no app. There's there's no wooden process. There's a friendship that draws us back to him over and over and over again, consulting wisdom. You know, this morning we're going to celebrate what maybe epitomizes God's agility more than anything else. And that's the cross for his to go hit his going so far that he'd go, okay, so we got it. Okay. So I got to go die on a cross. Let's, let's do that next. Let me pray. And we'll move into that. God, uh, Lord, I pray that for, for parents who are riddled and racked with, with shame and self doubt, I pray that you'd be honored and blessed by the wisdom of those men in that video and, and your invitation, God, to, to come up close to you and, and seek wisdom. And God, I pray for people in the room who aren't parents, uh, especially our students, that you'd give them a, a sense of gratitude for their parents that's beyond the wisdom of their years that you give them responsibility and authority and relationships and more and more decision-making power, and that you would use that to keep them close to you. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.